Tonight, our text from the Bible is in the New Testament in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And we're going to look at just a couple of those verses. So if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there with me. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to read verses 1 through 3, and then verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, and would like one, there should be a stack of them out on the welcome table. And I would love for you to take one of those and make it your own and read it. And uh, consider that a gift of ours to you. Also, the text is going to be, it's already up there on the wall. So you can read along from the projector if you wish. So this is God's word, written a couple of thousand years ago now, but still authoritative, Christians believe, still meaningful, still true. So please, as we read it and as we study it, give it your attention. We'll read this text and then pray and then jump in, looking at it together for a few minutes. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray together and ask God to help us as we study this part of the Bible tonight. Please pray with me. Father, come now and do good work in our lives and on our hearts. Help us, Lord, to understand really what you're saying here. Help us to believe that you are indeed speaking to us through these pages, through this human author who lived thousands of years ago and yet whom we believe you inspired to write these words. And because you are the ultimate author of them, we believe that they are true. So help us, O oh God, to live as if they are true tonight, as if Jesus, the eternal Son of God, has entered into our universe, made himself subject to space and to time, became one of us so that he might save us and bring us back to you. Father, we ask that you would help us to believe these things that are miraculous, that don't have any rational scientific explanation that defy logic and yet that are at the heart of our faith. Grant to us faith, grant to us hope, help us to see Jesus for who he truly is, the word incarnate. And we ask these things in his name, amen. A lot of uh, you are new parents or if you're not a brand new parent, you've had a kid recently and there's nothing like that experience of giving birth. I don't know that from personal experience, obviously, but I was there three times when my wife gave birth. And even from the husband's end, from the dad's end, there's nothing like watching your kids be born. The first time we had that experience about five and a half years ago now with Nate, uh, I, I still remember that day very vividly. I'm sure if you're a dad, you remember it very vividly. Um, I remember, you know, you know, in a sense, it's, it's the most human thing that we can do. Uh, humanity is most evident in that room where you're giving birth to a child than anywhere else. Pain is there. Joy is there. Difficulty is there. Family is there. It's all right there. I remember Nate coming out of Marianne's body and me thinking, what in the world is going on here? There's no good way to put that, by the way. Um, I, sorry, honey. Womb. I always feel awkward using the word womb. I mean, what am I supposed to say? We all know what happens there. Um, and I remember thinking, wow, I didn't know that happened there, though, the first time. This sermon's derailed quickly. Let's try and get it back on track. Um, 
I remember it. What do you want me to say? And uh, I remember feeling just uh, terror. (laughs) I remember feeling joy. I remember being just amazed and awestruck at the whole experience. It was was a -a once-in-a-lifetime thing to have a son be born for the first time. Um, It's an amazing experience. And as we think about the Christmas season, as we think about the birth of Jesus... It's amazing to remember and to maybe imagine for the first time that Jesus, the eternal God, the one who made everything, who spoke by the word of his power, this universe into being, who has always existed and always will exist in eternal life and goodness and holiness, who is unchanging, who who is pure, who is radiant with glory, that God, Jesus became a human being. He was born of a mother. He came out of Mary's womb. I'm going to say it again. Crying, screaming, completely helpless, totally needy, utterly dependent upon about a 16-year-old virgin girl and his adopted dad, Joseph. That amazing miraculous once in a creation moment is at the heart of what it means to believe the Christian story. That is at the heart of what Christmas is all about. We as Christians believe that in the incarnation, God became a human being. John chapter one of all the parts of the Bible that talk about the birth of Jesus maybe summarizes what the birth of Jesus means better than any other part of the Bible. And so I want to talk with you just for a few minutes tonight about John chapter 1. And really, this is the main idea that I want to try to communicate. Christmas is the celebration of God becoming a human being. Christmas is the celebration of God becoming a human being. And that human's, that person's name is Jesus. And I want to look at this text with you by giving you three points, three ideas, hopefully for you to take hold of and remember. First, the word was God. Second, or the word was with God. And third, the word stayed God and became man. The word was God, the word was with God, the word stayed God and became man. Those are the three big ideas from John chapter one that I want us to talk about just for a few minutes. So let's jump in here and look at the passage. We see, first of all, that the word was God. Look at what John says to open his gospel. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, if you are not really familiar with the Bible, if you haven't read much of the New Testament, uh, then you need to know that this Fourth gospel, the gospel of John, is remarkably different from the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you're just to pick up a New Testament tomorrow, which I encourage you to do, and start reading in Matthew, you'll see that Matthew and Mark and Luke are all fairly similar. And especially at the beginning, when the narrative picks up in the life of Jesus, they're all concerned to tell you in various ways about the historical circumstances that surrounded Jesus' birth. And then you get to John, the fourth gospel, and you see something completely different at the very beginning. Really, 90% of John's gospel is not found in any of the other three gospels. The first three gospels use a lot of the same source material. They tell a lot of the same stories. John is 90% unique. And the very beginning of John is also utterly unique. You see, John isn't concerned primarily to talk to us about about the historical circumstances of Jesus' birth and how exactly it happened. John, rather, is concerned to talk to us from the very beginning about the meaning. 
the meaning of the birth of Jesus. And the way he does that is by using this interesting word a number of times, word. And what he says is, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, John was writing his gospel a couple of thousand years ago to people who weren't followers of Jesus. To people who didn't yet know the story of Christmas. And he designs his gospel to help them understand what's happening in Jesus' life and birth, in the incarnation. And when a Jewish person or a Greek person, who were the initial recipients of this letter, when they would have read this first verse, there would have been things that immediately stuck out at them. I mean, think about if you were a Jew 2,000 years ago who's steeped in the Old Testament and you read the Old Testament scriptures with your mom and your dad every night growing up and you look at John's gospel for the first time and you read it and it says, in the beginning, where is your mind going to go in the Old Testament? Way back to Genesis 1-1, right? The very beginning of the Bible where we see those exact same words, in the beginning. Jesus is being spoken of by John here as one who existed in the beginning. And then John uses that word, the word. A Jewish person would have understood this. In the Old Testament, the word of God is is powerful. It's the thing that creates. It's the thing that sustains. It's the thing that gives life. And so a Jewish person would have read John 1.1 and thought, John is communicating to me here that The eternal God who is one and who is forever praised, whom I have been told about in temple from my earliest days, has has in some ways shown up on the scene and John is here calling him the word. But, But that word, the word would have also made sense to an ancient Greek person, which was the vast majority of John's audience. You see that word, word, in the original language in which the New Testament is written is the word logos, logos. And a Greek person 2,000 years ago would have read that word and immediately also begun to think of things. They would have begun to think of the ancient Greek philosophers and poets that they had been hearing about and learning about from their earliest childhood. Heraclitus and Plato and other great philosophers that we still to this day study about in school use this idea of logos or word to refer to to refer to to whatever is the power behind the universe, to whatever gives this this world form and shape and and order. Really, the best illustration uh, to to describe what Greeks thought of when they thought of this idea of the word is is the force from Star Wars. I just can't help myself. That's probably the best illustration. It's, you know, the force is just sort of this nebulous, impersonal, yet seemingly all-powerful, idea or force that that pervades all of existence, right, in the Star Wars universe. And some people can harness it and some people can't. Uh, that's, That's in many ways similar to what the ancient Greeks, to the people that would have been reading John's letter, thought about this idea of the Logos. And so John is thinking about the people he's writing to because he wants them to understand. He says, this idea, this Logos, this word, is not an it, rather it is a he, Look at what he says in verse 2. He doesn't say, it, the force, the logos was in the beginning. It says, he, the word is a person, and he was there in the beginning with, with God. You see, John is trying to reach the Jews, and John is trying to reach the Greeks. And really what he's trying to say is that the one God of Israel who brought the people out of the land of Egypt... 
And the idea that the Greeks have in the back of their mind, false though it may be in so many different ways, that holds this world together, those things find their fulfillment. They find their resonance. They find their truth in the Word. The Word who is God. He says it very clearly in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. So John introduces the gospel by telling us about who Jesus was before Jesus was Jesus. And really he's saying that Jesus was the word. Jesus is the logos. Jesus is the thing that holds everything together, the person that holds everything together. Jesus is is God. But there's more. So stick with me. He doesn't just say that the word was God. Second, John tells us that the word was with God. You see that there in verse 1? Look at that carefully again. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with, important little word there, with God, and the word was God. Now, that's really weird. Think about that with me. At the same time, John, the author of this gospel, seems to be saying that this word, Jesus, is God. And yet, at the same time, he's in some way distinct from God, so that John can also say he's with God. He seems to be saying that the word is both God's identity and God's peer, God's friend. He says the word is with God and the word is God's own self, God's own personal expression. Now, what's going on there? How can the word be both with God and God at the same time? By the way, just one real brief application point here. This is free of charge. Um, I want you to just think, if, if you're a Christian, if you've been a Christian for a while and you've read this text before, um, just think about if you're like a Christian in the year 90 AD and you read John for the first time, how hard it would have been to understand what in the world John is trying to communicate. Uh, I just want us to take a moment, just as a side note, and remember how dependent we are upon thousands of generations of Christians who have gone before us. Brilliant minds who have sorted through these ideas, who have thought carefully about these things and been in community learning about these things. We don't approach John's gospel with just sort of a blank slate. We have many, many generations before us who help us understand it well. That's an important thing for us to remember. But back to the point. What John's saying here is that the true God, listen, is both a unity and a community. He's saying that the word is God, and yet, in a sense, the word is also distinct from God. He's saying that God is one, which any Jewish person would have said. The word is that one God, and yet, somehow, there is also some sort of personal, essential distinction between the word and between God. The word is God, and the word is with God. He is God, and yet within that substance of God, there's a distinction. There's, there's unity, and within the unity that is God, there's also community. As one commentator put it, there's an interactive relationship within the person of God himself. Now, at this point, some of you have already checked out. If you don't like to think, or if you, you know, this stuff makes you bored, you're like, ah, whatever. If you do like to think, you might be checked in still, but just because, you know, you like to think about interesting ideas. Uh, but I do want you to think about the idea, uh, about this idea in a very practical light. This, this is an extremely practical thing for you to understand. And let me also say that it's essential to being a Christian. Uh, really what's being talked about here is the doctrine of the Trinity. 
The idea that God is one God and yet there are three distinct persons within the one God. The Father, the Son, which are spoken of here, and also the Holy Spirit. He's saying, John, that Jesus is God. And yet he's also distinct from God. He is, he is a particular new revelation of exactly what God's like. Now, what in the world does that matter to you now? Two things. There's a million things I could say. Let me say two real quickly about this idea that the word was God and the word was with God. First, the idea of the Trinity, the truth of the Trinity means that God loves you. You might think, oh, I'll have some other notion of God and he can still love me. Well, that might be true, but let me, let me try and put it this way. The Trinity means that God is in his very essence, love. John says that in one of his letters, God is love. In order to love something or someone, that something or someone must also exist, right? If I'm going to love my wife, my, my wife must be a real person that I can actually express my love to. In order for a God to love someone or something, that someone or something must exist. And in order for that God to be a God of love, he is dependent upon that thing existing so that he can love it. And if that thing doesn't exist, there's nothing there for him to love, and so he can't be a God of love. Now, Christianity says that God in and of himself is love because God in and of himself has a community. He is three persons in one being in which there is an eternal relationship of love. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father. The Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Son. God loves in and of himself. God does not need creation in order to be loving. Does that make sense? He's not dependent upon you existing in order to be say, to, to love because he can only love you. No, God loves God loves himself in himself perfectly. Now, that's also a really cool, interesting thought. But it means, it means that the Christian God really, literally is love. Love is defined by God's eternal person, by his eternal being. If you want a God who loves you, if you want a God in your life who cares... The Christian God is by far your best bet, and really he's the only option because he's the only God. And you can be absolutely certain that he knows how to love you better than anyone else because he has been doing it, so to speak, in his own essence since before time began. Trinity is very important. It's very practical. Another reason it's practical to understand the Trinity and to understand this idea that Jesus is God, that the Word is God, is because, let me just put this bluntly, if Jesus is not God, all of you are going to hell. If Jesus is not God, then you cannot be saved. If Jesus is not God, he cannot bear your sins. If Jesus is not God, he cannot be born of a woman and yet without sin because he's tainted by human rebellion through natural childbirth. If Jesus is not God, he does not have the power to withstand the attacks of the evil one. If Jesus is not God, then he is incapable of teaching us about God in the way that we must learn about him. If Jesus is not God, we cannot come back to God. Jesus must be God in order for any of you to be saved because only God is powerful enough to save any of you. Jesus 
being the word, Jesus being God, Jesus existing before time began is essential for you to be saved. It's essential for your life. It's essential for your eternity. You must believe it. Jesus is God. The word was with God and the word was God. And yet thirdly, the miracle of Christmas is this. Verse 14, the word was God. The word was with God. He created all things. And yet the word God The Son, the second person of the Trinity, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. In a sense, this is the main point, okay? Having established the full divinity of the Word of Jesus, we see here the really the unfathomable miracle of the Christmas story. This God became a man and yet retained all of His all of his godness. The word became flesh. That's what we mean when we talk about this idea of the incarnation. Think about that word, incarnation. One of my favorite things about living in San Antonio are carne asada tacos. Love them. Chili is always better when it's chili con carne. You should all have chili with meat. That word carne means meat. I'm pro-meat. I don't want to offend you vegetarians, but meat is good. I love it. I like to take it and get it in my belly. I like meat. And um, what Jesus, what's being said here is that, that God, God took on meat. He took on flesh. He, he became carne. He became flesh. God became one of us. When he was born in a manger 2,000 years ago, and yet at the same time, he remained fully and completely the word, God. Unbelievable. Let me just say three things real quickly about this idea of the word becoming flesh, then try and drive it home with some application. First, got to get this. God became a man. Man did not become a God. Okay? I want you to hear that. God dwelt among flesh. Flesh did not eventually dwell with God. Um, mixing that up makes all the difference in the world. The, the, the Christian story, the, the Christmas story is not the story that there was once a man who lived an extraordinarily good life and was extraordinarily nice and extraordinarily kind and he was so good that he, he in some way became divine and that man is Jesus of Nazareth. The Christian story is not that one man, because of his goodness, ascended into heaven and became God. The Christian story is that God descended out of heaven into our badness. The Christian story is a story of, of grace for those who are undeserving. It's not, a, it's not a moralistic fairy tale about someone who was really, really good and deserving. God became one of us. We didn't become him. Second, God became a man and yet stayed fully God. You've got to get that as well. When Jesus became a human, he didn't just sort of sacrifice his divinity and become a man. And also, Jesus isn't half and half. He's not like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, like 50% God, 50% human, fits together in one nice whole person perfectly. He's not 50% and 50%. It's not that he gave up half of his godness and he's only partly human and he's sort of just combined together in one person. And and then Jesus also isn't like a transformer, you know, that when it suits him, he becomes God. 
He, he's not like a man, just a normal dude walking around that sees an instance in which, oh, I'm going to need some divine wisdom here or some divine power here. I've got to walk on this water, man. God. No. He is at the same time 100% God and 100% man in one person. How do you explain that, man? You don't believe it. That's why it's called faith. It's essential to Christianity, however. So it's not that man became God, it's that God became man. And then secondly, he became a man and retained all of his godness. And then third, I want you to get this. Jesus was like us. I mean, in some senses, he's not like us. He's not a sinner. That's the main reason. He can do things like walk on water. He does miracles. He's an amazing teacher. But, but in so many ways, Jesus is just like us. One theologian used the word of accommodation. In the incarnation, God is accommodating himself to us. You know, when you talk to your kids, you accommodate to them. You get down eye to eye with them and you speak in ways that they can understand. You use their kind of language. That's exactly what God is doing for humanity in Jesus. Jesus, Isaiah the prophet says, did not have any beauty or form that would draw us to him. You know, when Jesus shows up on the scene in, on earth a couple of thousand years ago, it wasn't like everyone was immediately aware, oh man, the king is here. It wasn't obvious. Think about it. Jesus was a normal looking guy. Christianity means that, that Jesus went through puberty. Jesus, Jesus got indigestion. Jesus got tired. Jesus needed a nap. Jesus got sick. Jesus had to make friends. Jesus had to learn language from his parents. Jesus had to get up in the morning and walk to the shop so he could help his dad. Jesus had to do everything that you as a human have to do. He was completely like us in every way, except without any sin. Jesus is God accommodating himself to you. Another theologian, J.I. Packer, says this, The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. Listen, because Jesus, because God became a human being in Jesus that understands fully what it's like to be a human being, you can have complete confidence that God knows you. God understands totally what you are going through now. God has, in a very, very real way, identified with all of the struggles that you are facing in life. When Jesus was born as a baby and you looked at that baby and saw God there, you knew the extent to which God would go to understand what it's like to be broken, to understand what it's like to have need, to understand what it's like to be tired is so vast that we can't understand it. Why did Jesus, why in the world would God do something like that? Why would the word who dwelled with his father in perfect harmony, in perfect glory, up in heaven, enjoying everything about himself and his own beauty and his own goodness and his own joy, why would he become a human being? Why would God enter our world in the middle of nowhere in some poop-filled cattle stall? And then sleep on rocks and have all his friends abandon him and eventually get lied about and stabbed in the back and betrayed and have to carry a cross all the way up a hill outside of Jerusalem only to have people stab his wrists 
and stab his ankles onto that cross and then beat him within an inch of his life and leave him there to die. Why in the world would God want to be one of us? There's only one explanation. God would become one of us that we might again come back to him. God became one of us because God is a God of mission. Jesus has a mission and his mission is to bring you back to his father. And in order to do that, he has to fully enter your story. He has to fully enter this world because our rebellion against God, our messiness, our brokenness, our problems have to be paid for by someone. And God knew that if we weren't going to pay them ourselves, then he would be the one that had to do it. And so Christmas tells you at the end of the day, The true God is a God who was not just content to sit in heaven in his perfection and in his beauty and in his glory and watch us waste our lives. No, the true God is a God who left those things. He left perfection and entered our brokenness. He left glory and entered ugly. He left perfect love and community and entered abandonment and betrayal. He left, he left all of the joys that being God brings. As Paul says in Philippians 2, he didn't count equality with God something to cling on to, but he took the form of a servant. And he did that so that you, so that you might come back to him. Christmas tells you that God, in becoming a human named Jesus of Nazareth, and then dying on a cross some 30 years later, Christmas tells you that because that has happened, everything that's necessary for your life to experience renewal, for your life to experience healing, for your life to experience hope, no matter what you're going through now, has been fully taken care of for you by God. You must do. Believe. Believe that the story is true. Believe. Believe that God became one of us. Believe that in Jesus you see fullness of God and fullness of man and a helpless baby. And that baby would grow up. He would live a life like you and I live. Only he would never turn aside from his father's will. And then he would die a sin, a death that he didn't deserve to die because you sinned. And he was raised again from the dead. And in his resurrection, he brings you all the fullness of life that God can offer. Believe. Believe. Believe that in the birth of Jesus, all of your lives are instilled with hope. Believe that in the birth of Jesus, the darkest day, the longest year, the most sorrowful moment can be done away with. Believe that God was willing to become one of you so that he could take you back to be with him again. Simply trust that that is true. It's the message that Christmas screams at you on every page of the story. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the message of Christmas. Father, some of the heaviness of the theological truth here is striking. The idea that you, in the incarnation, entered into our world, you entered into our story, you became like us in every way, except without any sin. You were born as a little baby. You understood fully in your life what it was like to be human. And you did all of these things because we have a need that we can't meet. You came and met those needs for us in your own life. And then you died so that we can be forgiven. Father, help us to believe. 
Help us to worship. Help us to delight in the Christ child, the fulfillment of the story, the fulfillment of all of our longings. Help us to see him for who he is, both God and man, the word who came to dwell among us. Oh Lord, grant to us faith. Grant to us eyes to see what is true. Help us to be be captivated, captivated by the beauty of Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Let's respond to God's word together. As is our custom at Christ Church, we pray together immediately following the sermon, a prayer of confession. We pray this prayer to remind us of our need, to remind us that God had to enter into our world in order for us to enter into his world. Uh, We are sinners. We are rebels. We don't have our acts together. We make mistakes. And yet God is willing to forgive. So we confess our sin. We tell ourselves and we tell God what is true about us. And then we hear from him that he freely pardons all of us by his grace. So let's pray together. The prayer printed uh, up here on the screen. Please join me. Lord Jesus, you are the word made flesh. You humbled yourself that we might have life. Forgive us for our pride. You dwelt with us in love. Forgive us for our hatred. You served us when it cost you everything. Forgive us for our selfishness. We thank you that because of your birth, we can be born again. We thank you that because you died, we have life. We thank you that you came as one of us, full of grace and truth. Amen.